0: The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice.
1: Today, on the lab report, Tom Williams is back on for part two.
0: Oh, we're going to talk probiotics today, people.
1: And we're going to ask him the fireball question. Whoa.
0: The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Lumber is a funny word. Why are you stretching for a podcast? Is it because it
1: sounds like lumber, but it relates to your body? Is that Um, why it's
0: funny? I don't know I think so Maybe Hello Hi Michael Chapman Hi
1: Patty Devers How are you? I'm
0: great Welcome to the lab report Gotta use my
1: podcast voice It's very
0: strange What are you doing?
1: I'm not sure I've been playing Pirates and Batman At home with my daughter Oh Hello everyone Welcome to this Genova podcast where we talk about functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and all the other fun functional medicine stuff that we talk about.
0: We put the fun in functional medicine.
1: Oh, I love that. (laughs) That is
0: so good. I know. Well, if you're hearing this awesome podcast for the first time, you should go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe. Hit the subscribe button. Yeah, hit that
1: subscribe button.
0: Rate, review, leave us some feedback there.
1: And if you have additional feedback or a question and you would like to communicate that to someone here... Mm -hmm. You can email podcast at gdx.net. You, want, you know, I no longer say right. at podcast at gdx.net. I've, I've figured out that particular part of this intro. Well,
0: the other thing that I've figured particular. out is not to say like, to hit the like button because there's no like button on iTunes. Yeah,
1: that's an important... Yeah. I mean, it's We're
0: evolving. We're learning. It's good.
1: It's good. It's good to <laughs> grow up a little bit. Um, yeah. So today, what are we doing?
0: Well, as you remember... Last episode, we started this amazing interview with Tom Williams, that was jam packed with amazing information, and so we thought we'd make it a two parter.
1: Yeah, because um, there's so much to digest.
0: Oh, I quote see what you unquote, did
1: there. Um, that you know, sometimes you just gotta you gotta take the little you know bite sized portions yeah, we of need information. A, a breather, at a time. yeah. And so uh, we had part two available to us here that we're gonna continue this interview that we had with Tom Williams, and um, that is, that is the plan for the yeah, day. Yeah,
0: so if you remember, Tom Williams is the person we go to with all of our burning questions because he knows everything.
1: Yeah, he has written several textbooks that are functional medicine related, HPA axis function, cardiometabolic mm-hmm. metabolic risk, immune function, all these books that are available through the Point Institute. He also was VP of Science, Scientific Affairs at Orthomolecular. Um, so he knows it's just an incredible amount of information. Yeah. He's like a walking library.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so last episode, we kind of cut it somewhere in the middle. And we're going to finish that episode today, and we're going to talk GI. Yeah. Dr. Tom Williams.
1: So without further ado, let's get to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Turning to GI uh, a little bit, because you were talking about... GI. And I always think it's so fascinating too, when we have, where we see studies about nutrients, um, that have been fermented by the microbiome and that's where they turn into more of their active constituents and and research around those sort of veins. But it gets me to this concept of probiotics. And I know this is probably a really large question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, with respect to probiotics, there's been so much talk about Does it survive the GI tract or the, you know, the upper GI? Does it need to be enteric coated? Does it need to be refrigerated or can you make it shelf stable? Does that matter? So I'm just wondering as far as the actual preparation of probiotics, do I, what should I be, what are best practices? What should I be looking for?
2: Okay. So, you know, obviously when we think of probiotics, it's like, um, obviously it's like species. It's like saying, you know, what should I feed my pet? Mm -hmm. well what pet i mean if i got a pet horse or i got a pet fish Mm -hmm. those are two different things um and so probiotics even though we think of them as sort of one category we're now learning that you know they're not just one thing there's all these different species um saccharomyces boulardii which is a yeast is now included you got spore-based probiotics you've got mostly lacto you know uh you know ones that we can grow let's say in a in a um in a vat kind of thing. So, you know, there's all kinds of limitations on what a probiotic is. So you asked really two questions. What is the stability of the product itself, let's say in in the capsule from a refrigeration and all that kind of standpoint. And then what's sort of the survivability once you consume it? So those are two sort of s- different questions. Mm-hmm. Um, one, of the, one of the things that makes a probiotic, a probiotic is sort of a selection through all of these gauntlets of you know can we grow it can it you know can we make it can we freeze dry it can it survive uh, manufacturing will it survive in the gut you know acid and bile and enzymes and then will it do you know in the end does it do anything does it have a an an effect Mm -hmm. and so once most of these get through there of the umpteen uh you know thousands and thousands of bacteria that are sitting somewhere in a in a stock um, only you know less than one percent of these would ever go through all of those gauntlets to become a probiotic Hmm. um so most so most of if you think i I always tell people probiotics are an extremely small subset of domesticated bacteria that would live in your gut meaning if you look at the bacteria that live in your gut even if it's the exact same species The fact that it was isolated and grown and then grown in this big vat of perfect pH, perfect nutrients, you know, monoculture, every give it everything you want. What are these bacteria going to do? Do you think they're going to produce all of the enzymes they need to survive in a, in a GI tract? Mm -hmm. No, Mm -hmm. they're going to, they're going to just, you know, it's it's like going to Florida, you know, just sitting there in the sun, just taking it all in, you get (laughs) free food, free everything. And so, they're highly domesticated yeah. uh, is the kind of the way I, I term them. But in that process they are pre-selected to try to, to be survive survive the gut and everything like that. So you know there was a paper that was published two years ago out of Israel that looked at a multi probiotic strain and asked that specific question, rather than just looking at the stool they looked at the stool but they biopsied like i think like 15 different places in the gi tract to find out were those strains in the oral probiotic actually living in those individuals and Mm -hmm. what they discovered was in some individuals where their niche was permissive what they call permissive to those certain strains they grew but in other subjects certain bacteria were resist They were resistant to those. So a lot of it has to do with the person, their own baseline microbiota, and how certain strains are going to either colonize, and when I say colonize, it's a very transitory colonization, maybe up to a couple weeks at most, before they pass out, um, and, so I think the question is, Do can can some probiotics live in some individuals? I think the answer is certainly yes, but it's not a universal answer. I think we're learning this as a personalization. When you go back to your first question about do they need to be refrigerated, most probiotics that people are, are dealing with, except for the spore formers, most bacteria that we deal with, the lacto, the bifido, and those kinds, um, most people are now making them usually with overages, So they can survive at room temperature and still meet their expiration date. Um, But all probiotics can be benefited by being refrigerated. Mm -hmm. So if you refrigerate those that have overages, they're just going to have higher amounts for longer because they've been been created or or formulated to be stable at room temperature. Where you run into issues with that is if you live in Asheville, North Carolina, Mm -hmm. and it's 150 degrees well no I, I know it never gets that hot in there, <laughs> no. but um let's say you live in phoenix arizona right or death valley and the the ups guy closes up his his uh his truck and goes in for a you know a two-hour lunch and leaves his truck closed and it gets up to 200 degrees in there right. that's the the thing that you don't know is how how is it being stored before it gets to you. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of companies will actually ship their probiotics on ice um, because, or on dry ice to prevent that from happening, not knowing what's happening in shipping.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, you touched on spore based probiotics. Um, and it seems like a lot more clinicians that we speak to on the phone are moving towards spore based. And I understand that, you know, they're easier to survive through the the pH of of the stomach and through what's what's the literature on spore-based probiotics like where is that going
2: so that's a good question so um you know spores are i mean they, I always joke with people you know cuz probiotics have a specific definition they are live microorganisms you know that have a you know that taken at a certain dose have you know a, a clinically measurable effect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that's a rough definition, but the first part, the first one I'm talking about, they're live. Mm -hmm. Well, spores aren't really live organisms. So the question is, are they even probiotics from the classic definition? But, you know, people started using spores um, primarily because they're just bulletproof. I mean, they're, you can, you can almost do anything to them and they nothing happens. And so from a manufacturing standpoint, you know, shelf life issues, you don't have to worry about, but you know, people were selling the spore-based probiotics, if you want to call them probiotics, well before we had any data to really know much about what they would do clinically. Mm-hmm. And so the, the body of data that we started with was mostly first with the lactobacilli and um, then, you know, later with the bifidobacteria, primarily because they were the first to be to be commercially available. I mean, you can't do a clinical study on something that you can't actually deliver orally. Right. Um, and so we first started there, those mostly came out of the dairy industry and they were used in food preparation. So this, you know, we already had access to them and then people started moving to these bacilli, which are the spore based probiotics. And I think what we're seeing emerging in the literature is some potential benefits. And you know, I have written on these, um, but it's very, I would say it's much earlier in our knowledge base of exactly how to predict. There's only a handful of them that are available. So it's not like we have a wide number that are out there. Mm -hmm. Um, We only have like four, I think, strains of bacilli that we've actually been using. And a lot of these have been looked at in Europe. And so we're starting to see some data on, you know, GI related functions and things like that. Um, But it's, it's very difficult to, we don't have any dose comparison studies. We don't have, you know, broad range studies of different Patient types. So we're still very early in this in the idea of this. So I think you know I think in the end they're going to be seen as you know one of the categories. But I don't think they they certainly don't replace lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. If you look in the gut, um, you know you don't see a lot of the strains of the bacilli, spore formers coming up on your your uh, stool analyses. So um, so the question is, are these normally you know indigenous species for most individuals. So, you know, these are the kind of questions that still need to be kind of asked. Um, And so I would say we're at the early stages. I I would say that what what kind of gives me pause are the people selling these generic things called, you know, soil-based organisms, and Mm -hmm. they don't really define what they are, Mm -hmm. or they list, you know, 50 different organisms as if somehow they know what's in there. And that I think is those products to me are not at all should not be considered therapeutically um predictable mm-hmm. if at all efficacious at all um and certainly they're there shouldn't be called probiotics so um i think that's we, you know we had a lot of those types of products and we still have some of those types of products around and they're almost undefinable um mm-hmm. so i i really don't think those should be relied upon at all
0: Well, part of what makes, part of the selling point around these spore-based probiotics is that they're hardy and they can stick around. Do you think that there could be potentially any danger in the fact that what makes them so great is that they're hard to kill in your GI tract, that there could be spontaneous like infection or or problems that then continue to repropagate because of the fact that they're spored?
2: Yeah. um, Well, you know, this question used to always go back to, you know, know, the, the complaint or let's say the the complaint that, you know, well, probiotics don't, you know, they're transient, you know, they don't, Mm -hmm. they don't take up residence, um, very long. And my answer to that for many years was thank goodness, right? because if, if it were, if we could like reseed the gut, that's why I don't like using the term reseed. Um, because if we, if we, if you want to know what's the worst thing you could do for your gut is a monoculture where you decide to put, you know, the one or even the 10 strains that you think and then the whole GI tract is full of those, just those 10 things. So the fact is probiotics, like food-based organisms are intended to be transient. Meaning, there, I, I talk about in, in the book, I talk about the idea that there's sort of like these semi-permanent cultures and then there's this. there is a whole series of transient Bacteria that are their their job is just to be there for a little while, produce the metabolites, do what it is they do, and then then leave. And um, so your question is, could the spore formers, when they obviously produce future spores, let's say in the gut and remain there too long, or you know take up, I think that's a concern that we should be um, thinking about. Although I don't know that anybody's shown that that is. Necessarily occurring with the strains that we're using.
0: Oh, okay. um,
2: so I think you know I, I I think the future of many of these strains like Akkermansia and you know all these ones that that people are now looking at, a lot of these are not going to be dietary supplements. I think the future of certain of these quote unquote probiotics are going to be drugs or bio what 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 may be viewed as biologics because drug companies let's say Akkermansia becomes a feasible delivery uh, of an organism which obviously is being worked on in animal studies and now in some human studies if they can grow enough acromancia, are they going to try to give it to people see if they can like reduce diabetes or something like that with it yeah they're going to try that but that probably is going to come out as a initial initially they're going to try to put it out as a drug as a biologic mm-hmm. um and not as a as a dietary supplement and Uh, partly because all of these newer ones have been derived directly from the human GI tract Mm -hmm. where um, FDA considers that then a biologic.
1: Got it. Interesting. Um, Okay. Another question. I'm, I've got a lot. I'm sorry, (laughs) but we get this question all the time. I was wanting to get your thoughts when somebody is doing uh, a a treatment for um, SIBO, and they're doing like a antimicrobial or antibiotics or something of that nature. Have you seen anything in the literature to suggest that they should discontinue probiotics or continue probiotics? Have you seen what's the relationship between people on off probiotics and with SIBO symptoms? Has that been studied at all?
2: Yeah. It has been um it, it, there has been numbers of studies looking at um SIBO and probiotic use. The Nuances you're probably both well aware of is what is the definition of SIBO, right? And mm. so if we if we use the the gold standard or what used to be the gold standard, which was you know aspiration and enumeration, or if we use um, breath testing, and it depends on which breath testing you use um, and what substrate you use and you know what you're measuring and all those different things, um, that's where the confusion comes in. Um, And but either way, in either case, the literature is more positive on the use of probiotics and SIBO symptomology than what I would say the functional medicine community's anecdotal um, experience. Mm. So, and I don't know why that is, but if you look in the literature, um, at least that it's been published, you know, up till the last couple of years when I recently reviewed it and published on this, um, most of the time it's either... Ha, either has no change on symptomology or has some benefit. Um, the idea that, you know, increases in gas and bloating and all the different things that that several people have mentioned and some of the reasons why they choose to go, let's say, with spore-based probiotics versus, you know, they, they try to stay away from, let's say, lactobacilli or certain types of bacteria. Um, it's just the literature doesn't seem to suggest that. So. It's possible and like, you know, you and I have talked about in the past that what people are defining as SIBO may be something different. And so you may have somebody with a breath test positive. It's not truly SIBO, but it may turn out to be early fermentation that you can measure with the breath test. And that may be exacerbated, let's say by certain strains of probiotics or, and you know, even the more controversial or as controversial is, you know, eating, having fiber or prebiotics right. when mm-hmm. you have SIBO. Mm-hmm. And so some people are very concerned about anything that, you know, they want to put them on a, you know, a FODMAP diet or something that's you know completely uh, away from any fermentation. And so, I mean, these are obviously where, uh, you know, a clinician has to know the patient and there's got to be some history there. I think, um, you know, there's even a debate in the literature, you know, uh, that we've had uh, at several different meetings about should you, in in the case of VODMAPs or or people have a breath test positive with fermentation, should we be taking their diet away so that they don't experience those symptoms? And is that giving us the false sense that we're fixing something when in many cases they should be able to handle fiber? So And they should certainly be able to want to have fermentable fiber that allows them to produce normal butyrate levels. So just taking away the substrate and saying, okay, this person can't tolerate and I'm fixing them is really maybe a short-term understanding of what fixing somebody means when what you really want to do is figure out how to get their GI tract to be able to handle the substrates that the the microbiota should be having as available to them for fermentation. So, um, so that, you know, there's motility issues. There's, you know, maybe even like, um, Stomach acid issues. There's a whole bunch of other things that go into that. And I prefer to view SIBO as a as a um, condition that needs to be dealt with at the root cause. And most of the time, the root cause of that is not the bacteria themselves. It's something else. And the ba- the change in bacteria will respond when you fix the motility, when you fix what's going on in the gut, and obviously sometimes the food itself.
1: Interesting. Uh, That's fascinating. It is, yeah. Um, I have two technically two more questions so i'm just this is the two question more. <laughs> but i i hear a lot about and this is really popular these days in functional medicine um the concept of anti-nutrients and i think the most classic example is lectins um and you know i, I also struggle with how hard we're making it sometimes at the end of the day to inform people from a cl- clinical perspective what to eat and i'm not sure that take that distilling a particular food down to one nutrient or anti-nutrient is necessarily an adequate description of that food in its entirely, entirety also so that's a long-winded way of in a kind of a <laughs> A rant on <laughs> what have you seen with respect to these anti-nutrients, in particular lectin, in the literature, and should we be concerned clinically?
2: So that's a loaded question. Yes, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> very controversial, um, and so I think my my general answer is um I believe that the human body has already adapted to most of these dietary quote-unquote anti-nutrients and we're finding out that what they may be quote-unquote anti-nutrient for uh, the absorption of one or two nutrients that we're concerned about but they may end up being beneficial for a whole bunch of other things Mm -hmm. and again this monolithic way of viewing um, things especially to to publish you know publisher wants to have a book everybody's got to you got something how are they going to read it I'm going to say you know this this thing that you thought was bad for you is not good for you or this thing that you thought was good for you is bad for you and and you know, there's got to be some sensationalism, and unfortunately, nutrition science and nutrition teaching has gone into the sensationalism uh, game. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, when it comes to phytates and li- uh, lectins and agglutinins and all the different things, I, I think um, I-, I just don't think that that uh, that is those are issues to the level anywhere near the level that they're being talked about. <laughs> Um, and I believe that our, let's say, our intake reference ranges take into account the fact that these so-called, so-called anti-nutrients are already in the foods. Mm-hmm. So, unless you're consuming an extremely high level of, you know, phytates or something like that that are blocking z- zinc absorption, and and that you know as an aha moment, we have way more issues. With just a bad diet, a poor nutrient diet, uh, toxins, you know, in their environment that are that are pre- creating anti-nutrients, drug-induced uh, nutrient depletions. I mean, these are all real things that are affecting us. Um, yeah. And I think these other things are are minor in the background. So mm-hmm. you know, if you've cleaned up, if if somebody's living in utopia, and and you're you're going down to that minutia. They're probably pretty healthy already. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't believe in the data that uh, I know. I've got some very good friends that that have sort of the the following and the lectin thing. I just. I just think again, it's it's cherry picking a certain set of the literature um, and not really uh, taking the broad sense of nutrition in 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 mind.
0: Michael's fist pumping for here, Doctor <laughs> Williams. And Michael, you know the problem here. What's Dr. That? Williams, he just knows everything. And so we could technically have him here for days just yeah, asking we, him all these burning questions that yeah, we've had. We shouldn't do that. Yeah. And so the problem is, you know, we still have lists more. So we probably want you to come back again, Tom. But we do end our interviews with one last question. Oh, yeah. And it's called the fireball. The fireball.
1: The question is, um, and I, I think this is a really interesting question since you yep. have written the book on supplementing dietary nutrients. What are the nu- nutrients? What are the supplements that you take hmm. on a regular basis? If you if you feel comfortable sharing that, that is, yeah.
2: Well, because of my my unique relationship with dietary supplement company and companies. Um, I have access to an innumerous amount of supplements. <laughs> I have a cabinet full of them, mm-hmm. which in some ways makes it easy and hard to, to stay on a, a routine. <laughs> right. um, and so I kind of, I I'm kind of one of these people that migrates in different seasons to different things. You know, multivitamin is something that uh, I'm regularly taking Um, omega-3 fatty acids, fish oil primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, So I'm taking, you know, a fish oil supplement. Typically, Anywhere from one to two grams a day of of an EPA, DHA type product, pretty high concentration. Um, Vitamin D, and I'm probably more consistent in the winter. I live in Wisconsin, so I'm probably more consistent in the winter taking (laughs) extra vitamin D. Um, And then I sort of have this rotation of of other things that I sort of go in seasons with. Um, You know, the use of these meal replacement or sort of functional food powders Mm -hmm. that are very common in our industry. Um, so I'm using, you know, some of those that are either, um, either whey based or rice protein based. And, you know, some of them are designed for inflammation or some anti-inflammation, some are designed for glycemic control. So I'm kind of, I kind of, there's kind of a mixture I make in the morning of (laughs) of a smoothie with one of the products that's sort of a, like a chocolate mint glycemic Mm. control product. And then those sort of this, uh, um. A, a, a chocolate-like uh, inflammation and then I put a banana in there and I love um, <laughs> I love uh, sunflower butter mm. if you ever had that yes um, no, and I, I add <laughs> sunflower butter in there mm. and um, and then I'll then I'll usually put a scoop of probiotics right in there so I think probiotics are another mm. another one um, <laughs> that I use so then and then I use sort of then I've got you know sort of your you're kind of, I would say, a, the pharmacy use of some of the products. Uh-huh. Um, I've got some, I had a, a knee, um, I had, not a knee replacement, I had an arthroscopic knee surgery to, to remove a, a torn meniscus. Mm-hmm. And so I've been using sort of chondroitin sulfate uh, blends mm-hmm. with um, glucosamine for that. So those are things that I, I kind of use, but they're not my, my daily routine.
0: Hmm. Okay. You know, interestingly, when we were going to ask you this question, I thought it was either going to be, I don't take any or just that. There's so many. What do you take?
2: Um. Well, if you would have asked me when I was younger, <laughs> I might have said I don't take as much. But as I get older, um, I'm I'm starting to think, like everyone, uh, right. that I need a little help. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well,
1: Tom, I can't thank you enough for coming on and letting us pepper you with so many questions. Um, I think that this information is really, really interesting and I think uh, all the clinicians out there are going to enjoy this immensely. So I yeah, just want to say thank exactly. you. Exactly.
0: And It's all the questions that we kick around here in the medical affairs department and debate. So to get the guy who's the expert to help us with these and just help navigate some of these answers is great. But I will say we encourage the, the listeners to go out and get some of the books that you've published through the Point Institute most recently, the, the second edition of the Supplementing Dietary Nutrients. And, sure. and like we said earlier, these books are kind of of a staple in our medical affairs department they're just great functional medicine they're fantastic great yep but we're so thankful tom and and please agree to come back on because we still have lists more to ask you
2: (laughs) well it was very enjoyable next time um hopefully i can maybe we can do this live down in Asheville. yes i can get down in the smoky mountains one of these days yes (laughs) Yes, that,
1: that would be excellent thank you so much tom and have a great rest of your day
2: okay well thank you guys very much
0: See, these are the things we've always wanted to know.
1: So many things, so many more things that I want to know. We
0: debate things that we hear on the phone with clinicians and in our medical affairs department. And all we have to do is just ask Tom Williams. Seriously. Right.
1: Just ask Tom. I think if people (laughs) start to figure this out, actually, Uh it's going to be like there's migration. Uh, It's going to be overrun. Yeah, absolutely. So, Tom, you might need a personal assistant here very soon.
0: Well, here's another thing: if if you're out there and you're listening to this and you have some questions, why don't you send them to podcast at gdx.net? That's a great idea. Save this collection of FAQs. That's a great idea for Dr. Williams next time.
1: Just ask Tom. I smell a new segment coming. Shirts.
0: We make shirts and hats and a jingle. Yes. Wait. No. Speaking of. Oh boy. What time is it?
1: Oh. You know what time it is. Question, question, of day, question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day.
0: Question of the day. Wait, what time is it? Oh,
1: I think you know what time it is. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day.
0: You're really gonna make a jingle for Ask Tom?
1: Uh, yeah, I think we're going to. Uh, but let's, let's do this. Let's do All question right. of the day. Let's go. Okay, Patty. Mm-hmm. A question for you. Since we were talking about spore-based probiotics, right, and a lot of those are bacillus species, mm-hmm. when we're doing a GIFX stool test, are we going to see any influence from somebody taking a spore-based probiotic on the test results?
0: Oh, great question. This comes up because when we review results with clinicians on the phone, oftentimes we'll see bacillus species grow out in the culture, right? So sometimes you'll see bacillus species, sometimes you'll see bacillus cereus, and the question is always, you know, is the patient taking a spore-based probiotic? Because sometimes we do see bacillus species grow out in culture. Right. However, bacillus cereus is in fact a potential pathogen. Right. So it really comes down to the clinical presentation. Is the patient having diarrhea? Because it is a very short-lived potentially pathogenic infection. So we're always looking for that clinical aspect. Is the patient on spore-based probiotics? Because sometimes we actually do see it grow in culture. Oh. And
1: when it grows out as bacillus species, we can't necessarily determine whether this is a beneficial or a potential beneficial from a probiotic or a potential pathogen. So a lot of times it'll get flagged as a potential pathogen and it could be coming right. from the actual probiotic that someone's taking, but we're not able to determine the difference between the two uh, based on the Malditoff assessment. So that's yeah. another thing to be aware of also.
0: So always match it with the clinical picture.
1: That's right. Next time, on The Lab Report, the multi-omics series continues. Oh,
0: I can't wait to spin the wheel to see what we're going to talk about.
1: Yeah, where is that thing? I can't remember where Um, I put that. I think
0: it's under the desk.
1: Oh, there it is. It's hard to miss.
0: You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Do you take many supplements?
1: No, just like <laughs> bro, bro- Bromega-3s, Broketan, <laughs> riboflavin. that's it. <laughs> Brum